Hi, everyone. My guest today is Michael Easter, the author of a new book called The Comfort Crisis. And this is a great book. There's tons of information to support us and explain exactly what's happening and how it's actually really natural, but what we need to do to live in the world that we've created now and how our biology pushes us to be as comfortable as possible. So for example, we're indoors now about 90% of the time. That's up almost 50% for anyone who was born after 1990. And he's saying, listen, this is all natural, seeking these comfortable things out. But how is this in fact working against us? And some ideas about what we can do to help us. Because in the end, that sense of well-being, that sense of appreciation and gratitude and enjoyment comes from actually figuring out ways to genuinely unplug. He gives us the science and data. And he also shares his story to full sobriety and how that led him to some of these epiphanies. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Welcome to the Gabby Reese Show. It's all an experiment. Hello, Ma. Push the earth away, Gabby. Michael Easter, welcome to my house. I uh, appreciate you coming. I mean, you live in Vegas. I, I feel like I Vegas. always want to say baby after I say the word Vegas. I don't know why. It's like <laughs> Because of Swingers, the movie Swingers. Is that what it's it embedded is? in everyone's God, brain. It's so yeah. good. <laughs> why are you in California right now? Uh, to come getting talk out to you. of the heat? No, come on. Well, and getting out of the heat. Yeah. I think it was 118 yesterday in Vegas. It's like Oregon right which now. Just slightly spicy. Yeah, I like Oregon <laughs> as well. Did, um, did you drag your wife out of there too? No, she's there with the dogs. <laughs> she's in suffering. The air con- she's yeah. in the air conditioning. Yes, she is. Okay, so I want to get. I want to dive right in because you have so many. There's so much information in the comfort crisis, and I, I, I read the book and listened to the book. Oh, awesome! And um, and and we talk, and you even talk about the difference of like when you read something and how you retain it versus when you, yeah. you know, listen to it and such. And and I think that's really true. But I, I have this observation about this, and tell me if you what you think about this. Okay, because a friend of mine is the one who turned me on to it. And he said, and I'm just being really direct, mm-hmm. he's like, the book gets better and better. Mm. And I had a thought when I listened to it, different than when I read it, it felt like you were actually your old person when you were reading the part about your experience before sort of, okay, getting sober and all these things. Mm-hmm. It almost sounded like when you were recounting that time in your life yeah. that you somehow almost were that guy. Mm. And that then as you sort of went on this journey and, you know, took on all these adventures and these really uncomfortable situations and had these learning experiences, that then it was like, we got to listen to you arrive at who you are now. Mm. And that's interesting. I don't know if that, if, has anyone said anything to you about that? Well, they haven't, but I also think that, you know, as a writer, it's, you know, what the reader observes and thinks is often right you know it's uh if you are perceiving that then that there's probably something there well in the audible part though i see in reading it it's it's more of like you're giving us information yeah and i want to talk about that information now but in the in the audible Mm. it's almost like we get to hear you you i can hear the change in you oh that's interesting yeah it's and and for what it's worth I know this is because it's like a happy ending. Yeah. <laughs> you, you're like become more and more likable. Oh, good. In the audible. <laughs> no, I'm being serious. I yeah. know it sounds, but it, you know, you were in a different headspace. So I want to, I want to talk about, um, before we talk about sort of how you having, a, you know, a cathartic experience, mm-hmm. just sort of a little bit about how you, 
you were raised that you think that actually got you into that situation in the first place? Just that headspace. Yeah, totally. Um, so I come from a single parent household. It just me, it was always just me and my mom. And the reason for that is because uh, my father, as well as most of the men in my family, uh, were good at drinking. <laughs> tends to be a, a sport uh, we do. So like my, my father, I don't know him. Um, I can only assume for that, but he has a pretty wild history as well as a lot of my uncles. There's a lot of, it's been a lot of time. Do you have mystery siblings bars. and stuff in uh, places? I don't know, no, but you know, good if you're 20, listening. Good old 23 and me has really put a lot of families uh, totally. on the spot. Yeah. Um, so I basically found myself sort of living that same lifestyle. Now there were differences. Because I think that if you looked at my life on paper, everything seemed great, right? I, had, uh, I was working at Men's Health Magazine as an editor. Uh, I had a house. I had a car. All that kind of stuff that were like, oh, yeah, American dream. But I think internally, uh, I mean, things were a mess. So, you know, I like to explain the reason I think that I drank ultimately is because it really just comforted me from life and the world, right? Mm -hmm. You ever feel uncomfortable? For me, if I had a drink, that fixes it pretty quick. Right. If I don't want to be in a social situation, you know, I feel a little awkward. I'll have a drink. That'll be fine. If I'm stressed from work, have a drink. That'll fix it. So alcohol becomes the solution for essentially the discomfort of, of living. And that works until it doesn't, yeah. right? Because I think that ultimately... You know, my own drinking, I think it's a combination of genetics and also environment, just like everything is, right? Like, I remember the first time I drank alcohol, it was like, oh, well, that was great, mm -hmm. you know? Were you pretty young, like a young teenager? Yeah, maybe? I was probably like 15, 16, around okay. that area. It was like... Was your, did your mom flip out? Because if she saw the pattern with your dad, did she, was she riding? Like, did she freak out? So here's the deal with that, is that my mom, um, she had to travel for work. So she would be gone about a third of the year, and I would have, I had this like rotating cast of nannies. It was like one, you know, like they come in and out every year or two. And so I would only drink when she was uh, out of town. Oh. So she had no idea. Yeah, until I was 18 and got arrested for public intoxication and riding a scooter really fast and just being an idiot, you know. Um, <clears throat> but so, you know, eventually I faced this point in my life where, you know, things, when you drink like I do, and I like to describe it as that, you know, my first drink was always the next one. And when that's the way you drink, uh, things don't tend to work out well in your personal life. Let's just say that, you know. So wheels were just kind of coming apart, and I had tried to quit drinking tons and tons of times. I mean, more time than I can even count and or remember. Why do, because, okay, you get in trouble, you don't feel good, <clears throat> you're hungover, things like that. Did you just say, okay, I'm just not going to drink anymore, and something would come up, the stress, the boredom, the social disease. And then, so you'd be like, okay, well. Yeah. So you, you wake up the next day and it's like, I'm never doing that again. Yeah. But somehow my mind finds a way to say, no, it'll be different this time. Despite hundreds of examples to the contrary, right? That's just like, it's just how it works in my brain. And, um, I just remember waking up one morning, and I don't remember why it was this morning, but uh, for whatever reason, I could, it, it was kind of like a perspective shift, you know, and I could very clearly see that if I were to sort of take the, the comfortable route the way that uh, 
I knew uh, I was probably going to die early. Now, this would, be, this would be easier, to be honest. I mean, it sounds kind of counterintuitive, but um, I just knew that, you know, I was gonna, my life was going to end earlier than it, than it perhaps would if I were to take this second route, which was to, you know, face this discomfort of having to go through sobriety, which was the most uncomfortable thing I've ever done because not only is your, you know, <laughs> physiologically is your body like, you know, things kicking in, but also like you have to relearn so much about life and like how to live it, you know? Sober. So, yeah, totally. It's like, well, what do you do if you're at a party and someone asks you to drink? Well, what do you do at a college reunion? What do you do at a wedding? What do you do when you get stressed? What do you do on and on and on, right? So it's like this complete shift. But by going through that and coming out the other side, like I just, my life improved across the board. Like, I mean, point to anything, it mm-hmm. was better. You know, of course I was how long did that, How long did it, did you feel that you had some bearings? Like how, how long did it take? Because, you know, you have all these, and I want to talk about the gentleman who kind of helped you who had his own thing going on yeah. through this. Cause I think it, you know, we experienced it differently with Laird. I see, I grew up with a lot of people who drank okay. in the Caribbean. So I didn't. Mm. And also genetically, maybe I'm not, that may not be my thing. I'm, yeah. I'm sure I have other things. Yeah. I can, I can tell you what they are. It's like, I, you know, it's like I use exercise probably as a way oh, yeah, yeah. to do it. I just try not to overdo it or control or whatever it is. Yeah. Right. I mean, I think we all have our little tricks to, mm-hmm. to cope. Right. But Laird for the first 11 years we were together, um, you know, he drank Pinot Noir and it was interesting because, you know, you know, no one can say you have to stop drinking. Yeah. I couldn't say to Laird, I mean, I could, I could have been like, I'm going to leave if you don't stop drinking. That wouldn't have, that wouldn't have gotten the results I was looking for. And so it's a very interesting thing when you, when you're a part of it, whether you're helping facilitate it, like I did, Mm -hmm. right. Um, Or you're the person in it. And I watched him, you know, the Pellegrino bottle replaced the Pinot Noir bottle. Mm-hmm. There was desserts a little more often because yeah. of the sugar. Yeah. And then slowly I watched him find his way. He didn't go to meetings or anything. He just stopped cold yeah. turkey. But I just feel like this is so common. Yeah. And people beat themselves up uh, for it. And I'm, and I'm like, yeah, no, I think this is not a moral issue. I think this is incredibly common. And yeah. very good people get themselves into these situations and so that's, I think it's just really important also to destigmatize it where it's like, if you have to go to meetings, fine. If it seems like a struggle in three to five years, that's okay too. Yeah. But what support do you put in place so that you can be successful? And, and, um, and also just kind of, you might lose some friends. You yeah. know, that's the other thing. It's totally, you know, you might have a whole group of people that you just don't get to see anymore. Yeah. It's, um, you know, it's, uh, that's definitely happened with me. It's like, I have friends that I'm still super tight with. And then I have friends where I'm like, uh, we have nothing in common anymore, you know? And it's like, I'm trying to force it, but I have to realize like, yeah, it's okay that you, you're not on the same page anymore. And you can like, you know, send texts and still be cool. But like, we just, you know, there's just not much there anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so how long did it, did it, did you sort of feel like, I feel pretty good. I feel pretty strong in this. 
Well, I would say that, you know, sort of my take on it, I'll kind of answer this two ways. Mm -hmm. My take on it is that, you know, I have to realize that the genes haven't changed. You know, (laughs) I know that uh, if I were to have one drink right this very minute, despite being sober for nearly seven years, it would just there would be many more after that because something kicks into my brain that's like, Oh no, you know, you can talk yourself into it once you have, uh, once I have a drink. Um, so I have to be cognizant of that like all the time. Right. Uh, but I would say that I started feeling like I don't, uh, like I didn't feel the compulsion and really it became easier. It probably took, I don't know, maybe six months to a year, but even then it's like been a gradual, you know, if you think about it as unpeeling an onion, it's like you unpeel a lot of layers pretty quick, but then I'm still kind of unpeeling, but a little bit slower where you're learning about yourself. So, right. And it's the, and it's the, besides the physiology, it's also like, what are the mechanisms that trigger wanting to drink? Totally. And so it's like you, when you talk about peeling that onion, I, I also think it's a fascinating thing how it's a depressant so that, and then you get in that wicked cycle. Yeah. And there's probably shame. I think I watched this with Laird. There was like a, a little bit of shame. Yeah. And so totally. he would get up even earlier and train even harder because it was almost like a form of punishing himself. Mm-hmm. And what's really cool to see is when you see someone who feels good about themselves. Yeah. You know, like they're, he, he, t- I, th- I can see that he feels pretty proud that he's present and he's involved with the family. And, yeah. you know, it's, it's just an interesting cycle. So you had um, someone, though, who, also had a similar experience, but he was just quite a bit older than you. Maybe you could share. And he was sort of fighting his own good health fight at that time. Um, what was this from? The, you had, didn't you have, I remember reading in the book, someone who sort of helped you during your you know, quest for sobriety. I believe he, I feel like he had cancer, but you didn't know oh, it. Oh, yeah. Am I, am I yeah, not, you're right. in the wrong place? No, you're not. You're not. Okay. I forgot that I, that hasn't come up at all. So I totally, I forgot that it's in there, but yeah. I had um, a guy who had, uh, he was, I think he was probably early 60s, mm-hmm. and he had gotten sober about the same age that I was. He was 26, 27 maybe, and I got sober when I was 28, um, and he was just unbelievably helpful. And the fact, like, I didn't even, so he had, when he, we started working together, kind of, he, um, he had cancer. He had stage four cancer. He didn't even tell me until like a month later. And that just like blew my mind, right? It's like, holy shit. Mm. Sorry to swear, but like (laughs) this guy is using this little time he has left to help me. And it was just like, whoa, you know, it's powerful. It is. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's because I think sometimes we don't, we, we don't realize like if we can show, if we're a little further down the path on something. Yeah. Doesn't necessarily always mean age. Just that that kindness, we don't actually know how that impacts, you know, someone in, right. in such a real way. Totally. So let's fast forward how then, you know, it's not like, okay, I'm going to get sober and I'll do my job. And, you know, you you went and you took a really hard left. Yeah. As far as, you know, how you were going to approach, you know, looking at yourself, approaching life. Mm-hmm. Why? <laughs> Well, I think, you know, when everything changes, everything changes. Mm. Um, so what kind of led to the book is that I ended up meeting this guy whose name is Donnie Vincent, and he's this backcountry bow hunter filmmaker who goes into sort of like the world's most remote places for months months at a time. And he makes uh, hunting documentaries. Now, 
you need to understand that these are these films are more like planet Earth, but that happen to have hunting. I mean, he's uh, like a trained uh, wildlife biologist, like a really thoughtful, interesting, just kind of captivating character, you know. Um, and but I he, he wasn't raised that way, right? Necessarily. N- no, he wasn't raised a hunter, which is interesting. It's just he's kind of always had that, like he talked about just always being fascinated by it, mm-hmm. you know? Um, I think the sense of adventure is really what pulls him in, and that gets expressed through his hunting. Um, so I end up doing a... I was on staff at Men's Health at the time, or maybe I was just off... I can't remember, but uh, long story short, I end up going on a hunt with him in the backcountry of Nevada, for, and it wasn't long. It was like five, six days. Had you ever been hunting? Uh not really (laughs) like I'd been on some hunts with people when I was like a a little guy kind of you know like I don't know 10 or something but um not like this so you know we hike way back into this mountain range and we're hunting elk and you know it was kind of it was like this total shift in like what I was used to because we're carrying everything we need to survive on our back we don't have enough food because food is heavy um it's freezing cold the entire time Everything we do takes effort. You know, if we need water to cook food or to drink, we have to hike way down to this stream and get it and carry it all the way back up to camp. Uh, Other things like, you know, hunting involves a lot of sitting and waiting. As you're looking for animals or waiting for them to um, come out into clearings, like because a lot of them, different, depending on the species, they might sleep all day and then go out and eat at night. So you're just waiting. And you have no bars on your cell phone, right? So it's like... All of a sudden, I'm bored again. It was just like, what is this? Like, people are never bored anymore, you know? It's like, oh, man, this is wild. Um, and just being in nature for that long, like embedded in it, and stuff that's, like, totally wild, you know? And so it was well, like... there's rules, too. Like, you're not just going to kill anything that comes yes. out. You have to wait for something mature enough. Yes. And so that, I think that's the other thing people have to realize. This is... There's... There's like rules around this that all of the hunters or a guy like Donnie's going to oblige beyond. Yes. And the animal has to be mature and, you know, yes. so it, it's these, so it's all of it in play. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah, they generally hunt um, the oldest animal we can find in a herd. And the reason for that is because, um, Often, when you remove an old animal from a herd, it improves the overall health of the herd. Mm-hmm. Um, the old ones tend to be bullies and like <laughs> just can cause problems. Um, so it was kind of—I mean, frankly, it was some somewhat miserable the entire time because it was just totally—I was just totally out of my comfort zone, you know. And it's also interesting because I work for Men's Health Magazine, and they throw me into like these extreme gyms all the time. And, like, I have to train with, like, you know, intense mm-hmm. people like Laird. Now, mm-hmm. I could never keep up, don't get me wrong, but, like, I'm relatively fit for a dude who sits behind yeah. a desk and yeah. cranks out words, you know? And you would go home that night, usually. You're not going to yeah. be gone for five <laughs> or six days hungry and cold. Yeah, I'd go back to the Marriott, I'd mm-hmm. call in some Thai food, and then I would, you know, watch Netflix or whatever. So this is totally different. Uh, but when I get back, I just felt, like, changed, like, totally different, you know? It was like felt like sort of things had slowed down and I realized that there's, you know, something there. Um, I just felt healthier. I, I just felt better. Like, mm-hmm. you know, how do you classify better? It's just better. I just felt better. Mm-hmm. And, um, so then Donnie, Donnie and I hit it off. We become friends and he calls me up one day. I don't know, maybe a year later. And, 
says, hey, you know, I'm going to the Arctic for more than a month. You want to come along? <laughs> and uh, he goes on to describe this trip. He's like, you know, it's going to be the most epic adventure of your life. Like, we're going to fly in and you just think, this can't be real. There's grizzly bears. We're going to be hunting this caribou herd. We're going to be up there. It's, we're going to be totally alone. We're going to face blizzards and cross glacial streams. And I'm like, I mean, he's really, although there is that element of danger in there, like he's selling it. You know, he's like, this is going to be amazing, you know. Mm-hmm. And so I'm like, okay, let's do it, you know. <laughs> and uh, then he follows that up with like, okay, but just so you know, this is definitely going to be a lot more dangerous than the Nevada trip. You know that, right? I'm like, yeah, how much more dangerous do you think? Like, how much more? And he goes, 20 times. And I go, okay, yeah, I, th- I can handle 20 times. That seems reasonable. He goes, well, could be 50, could be 70 could be 90 times more dangerous, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I was in, I couldn't back out. Right. Um, well, Cause also what can get you up there? It doesn't exist. Yeah. In the first trip. So yeah. it's, there's, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of grizzly bears up there. And one of the, I mean, one of the biggest issues is just how remote it is, you know? So we would, um, we, you have to get flown out there in successively smaller airplanes. So just to get up there, to get from Vegas to where we, where we essentially started is five planes. So you go from like a 747 to a slightly smaller plane to a slightly smaller plane. And then eventually you are in a plane that is uh, like the size of a pack of gum, mm-hmm. more or less. And, the, you know, it can only fit two people. And the pilot is essentially sitting between your legs like it's a bobsled ride. Um, and it just lands in the middle of the tundra, like 100 miles from anyone. And it's like, okay. See you later, you know, and then you're just alone out there. So if something goes wrong, uh, it's going to be a while before that plane arrives. And I mean, not to mention if, you know, if the weather is the problem, the plane's not coming out. Planes also have very few places they can even land. So let's say you break a leg or something. I mean, you might be like a five mile hobble from anywhere reasonable that a plane could, could land, but I mean, overall, the trip was just like uh, Nevada, but amplified 50, 70, 90 times, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? So, you know, we carried everything. Um, everything you took know, effort. Like, you know you're going to be cold. He tells you straight up you'll be hungry. Yes. You will lose weight. Yes. Uh, you know, you're heading, you're willingly heading towards what a lot of us would consider a form of misery. Yes. But... But in a way, you know, uh, I, I have a friend who, he's a big, successful guy, and I saw him right after he almost drowned, right? Mm. And he was like, I go, are, are you okay? And he's like, I feel great. I feel alive. You know, it's like yeah. sometimes, especially maybe the, those of us that are entrenched into deep, deep comfort and distraction, if we have the willingness, like you had to be willing to put yourself out there yeah, and figure out a way there's no way to prepare for something like that, but to figure out sort of how to get ready. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't, you know, it's like even trying to figure out what clothes to buy to stay warm that yeah. aren't too heavy. I mean, people don't, I mean, these it's, are the, a, it's a process. Yeah. Yeah. And, and guys like Donnie, it's like, there's things that are more intuitive. They know they've got their favorite, whatever, Yeah. but th- you have to learn that. But I'm just saying like, sometimes I think we move away from things that actually make us feel, and we're going to get in, obviously get into it. I take a multivitamin, just trying to support my health and also, you know, just trying to bridge some of those gaps that maybe I'm missing in my diet. It's not always easy. And I've been taking Ritual multivitamin for about 10 months. 
and I really like this brand because it's clean, they're vegan friendly, um, they've got the highest quality nutrients, and the their nutrients are actually bioavailable, which means your body will not only be able to understand what to do with it and absorb it and use it so nothing's wasted, but that you won't find some of this shady stuff that you see in a lot of vitamins like sugars. There's no sugars or GMOs or major allergens, synthetic fillers, and artificial colorants. For me personally, one little nice extra kind of trait that they do is they have this time release capsule. So after you take your vitamins, you get this hint of mint. It's not too strong, but it just sort of helps you avoid all those weird vitamin burps, if you know what I mean. And the other thing about this is you'll hear that after about three vitamins, pills, the drop off of people consistently taking vitamins is, it's huge. It's like 80%. So you can get all these high quality nutrients, including vitamin D3, really important, in just two daily pills. So all their ingredients are traceable. They've got a visible supply chain so you know where your stuff is coming from. They also consider, hey, where are you at in your life? So they have it for women, they have it for men, and they even have it for teens. So the other thing is they're trying to make this easy for you. So they will deliver to your door every month with free shipping always and you can you know snooze it or cancel your subscription anytime you're not locked in they make it very very easy and they have a great offer for you today so if you want to get key nutrients without all the scary bs ritual is offering my listeners 10 percent off during your first three months and all you have to do is visit ritual that's r-i-t-u-a-l.com slash gabby to start your ritual today it's an interesting thing where our nature is seeking comfort and security and safety and, mm -hmm. you know, abundance. And then there's another exact part of us that it's just the only time that we can really spark up and, and become and thrive is when we are in some brutal environments sometimes. Yeah. And I don't mean a bad relationship where you yell at each other. Right. I mean, like, discomfort. Yes. And exactly. Um, so you... You, you say, I mean, there's so many interesting elements about that trip where you even talk about, you know, how we are never bored, mm -hmm. but ultimately the amount of creativity and things that come from boredom. Yeah. So, yeah, with boredom is interesting. So, I mean, we're essentially waiting for this caribou herd to come through, yeah. right? And uh, they don't want to come. <laughs> Just so you're sitting and waiting for... For nothing, more or less. And um, my cell phone didn't work, of course. I didn't bring a book. I didn't bring a magazine. I surely didn't bring, like, an iPad, right? So all of a sudden, it's like I find myself bored, very bored, mm -hmm. which is something that, you know, you look at the research. People spend more than 11 hours a day engaging with digital media. That's average. So there's people that are higher than that, you know? And, um, so this is totally different than l normal life at home because, you know, I describe in the book, it's like boredom is this evolutionary discomfort that we evolved to face. And it used to be good for us because basically what it does is boredom is not necessarily either good or bad, but what it does is it tells you do something, mm -hmm. do something else. It tells us that whatever we're doing with our time, the, um, return on our time is worn thin, you know, so pretend that you are out hunting, you need food. You're out hunting and you're in a position like me. The animals aren't coming through. You get bored and that would tell you, you know, maybe you need to do something else to go get food. We're mm -hmm. going to go pick some potatoes or whatever it is. Um, but nowadays we have what one researcher <laughs> described to me as 
junk food for the mind when we're bored, right? Yeah. So we have these like, it's not just phones. And I think people really focus on phones because they're always in our pocket. And, you know, everyone spends way too much time on their phone. Wait, but, is that Mary Oliver? Um, Who was it? There's a researcher that I talked to named uh, James Dankert. Okay. And he's up in Canada. Junk food for the mind, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. junk food for the mind. And um, the problem with all this time we're devoting over to screens is that uh, it puts your, your brain has to focus outwardly, and that's actually a lot of work for your brain to do. We have um, less time where we're kind of inward-focused, and we don't have long periods of time when we're inward-focused, especially, you mm-hmm. know? Uh, and then number two is that boredom is strongly associated with creativity. So they've done really interesting studies where they'll take one group and they'll kind of just let them use their phone or whatever. They can do whatever with their time. And then they'll take another group and they will bore the crap out of them. And then uh, they give them creativity tests. And the board group always comes up with more creative answers, like all the time. And part of what's going on is that it goes back to that attention and your brain being burned out. But also, let's say I'm, you know, scrolling Instagram. I'm just thinking about someone else's random ideas, right? Mm -hmm. I'm not having this inward time where I'm coming up with my own stuff. So I found, like, for me, when I was bored up there, um, you know, sometimes when you're bored, you just do meaningless dumb stuff. I read the labels on my (laughs) energy bars. I read the tags on my gear, uh, dumb stuff. But I also did some pretty good stuff. I came up with like 17 ideas for story ideas for the magazines I write for. I wrote some of the book. I did, uh, I came up with like, oh, you know, Christmas is in four months. <laughs> Bam, best list ever, right? So I think, you know, I'm kind of arguing that there's a lot of uh, focus now on how we need to use our phones less. And I 100% agree with that. Um, it's one of those things where I kind of describe it as, yeah, everyone knows it. No one can really do it. Right. But we also need to focus on all the other media we consume. Cause if I go, okay, my screen time is say three hours, I want to get it down to two, but then I take that freed up hour and I just watch more Netflix or I spend more time on the computer. Like your brain does not know the difference. Mm -hmm. What we need is these times of like complete disconnection um, to let our brains rest and to use it for introspection and not give our attention away to some random device and whatever is coming through it. And I'm also not saying that, you know, everything that occurs on a phone or on a screen is bad. There's plenty of amazing stuff, but I think that, you know, I think we all know that a lot of it goes to meaningless stuff. Yeah, and there's so much, so much data now showing that it's, you know, what it does with dopamine and, and uh, you know, emotional wellness and and I mean we know this already so that's the billion gazillion dollar question Mm -hmm. so if you have students yeah like yourself or I have children Mm -hmm. what's that look like because there's people listening to this and they you know and even if it's just them for their their themselves because there's another weird thing of it which is so a lot of us use it for work. You use it for work Mm -hmm. is somehow it's like, we're always getting tethered back to this. Yeah. So do you personally have a system in place that it's like you have, you know, a sort of a moat around it and you have figured out a way to really put a system. I have a friend who's an author and he puts it in a, you know, like a safe that won't open and things like that. And I'm like, okay, that's (laughs) fine. But this is, this is, you know, I always say that like my kids, I feel like they're the experimental age, the 17 and the 13 year old, not the older one. Mm -hmm. 
And I feel like the parents who have younger children right now are more well-informed. So they're going to be able to sort of figure out how to put systems in place. It's my group that their kids are the experiment, Mm -hmm. truly, because we didn't know it was coming. And we're trying to play catch up. And by the time you catch up to one thing, they're on to another thing. And it's just always trying to figure that out. What, I mean, do you have any, you know, really actionable things? And also you'll be arm wrestling, by the way, in your house. I don't even know what I would fight with my youngest daughter about if we weren't talking about her telephone. Yeah. How do you know what her screen time is? Yeah. It's about five and a half hours. Okay. I have students in my class that have gotten almost into nine a day. Think about that. Yeah. I mean, you know, as I point out in the book, it's like all this stuff is brand new in the grand scheme of time and space. Yeah, like the last hundred years, I think yeah, you said, right? That we've been... the last hundred years. Yeah. And we went from nothing digital in our lives to, I mean, it's literally become our lives almost, right? So for me, I don't think it is completely shunning it for sure, but it is figuring out how can I reinsert um, boredom in a way back into my life. And I do that. Uh, every day I'll take a walk and I'll just leave the phone at home and I use that time to like introspect, um, to come up with ideas, to just like be disconnected. So that could be like 20 minutes. Some days I'm like 20 minutes is up and we're going way deeper into the desert today because it's just like, it's rewarding. And you can feel it. Well, totally. I think too, it's a muscle that if you practice, you you start to get it. And I see it with Laird where he's drawn, he he's able to bypass all that because mm-hmm. of his relationship with nature. Yeah. It, he didn't break that relationship. So he never got crushed by the device as much as yeah. most of us, because he already understands his, his personal need mm-hmm. to be out there. Yeah. And I think that, I mean, you, you brought up a great point about nature. I think that that is a really great way to spend that board time. It's like we know from the research that time in nature is associated with less stress, more productivity, more happiness. Um, There's this concept in the book I talk about called the nature pyramid, and it basically tells Mm -hmm. you, it's like the food pyramid. But instead of saying, you know, eat this many grains and this much vegetables and uh, fruit, uh, it basically tells you how long you should spend in different types of nature, how often. So at the bottom, there's um, 20 minutes three times a week in the type of nature that you can find anywhere, like a just a city park, whatever. Right. You call that urban nature, right? Yeah. So just to be like drill down on it. So a lot of people, that's ridiculous. It's like 20 minutes. We can find 20 minutes three times a week, right? But it means, what do you, I think you call it soft focus, right? Like yeah. just put everything away. And when you take that walk, so let's say if you're going to another meeting or you're walking home from work, it doesn't mean, oh, you're outside in the park on your device. It means put it away. So all these benefits, they get canceled out if you're on your device because you're giving your attention over to a screen and it kicks you out of this this mode that we're talking about. Um, So that 20 minutes is really associated with um, less stress, more focus, and also the researchers I talked to, it's like, think about it as like improving your productivity because you're getting, you're going to be less stressed as you go back into work, less mm-hmm. burnout. If you were to take say 20 minutes, like around lunch or something. Uh, and you also come up with different, better ideas because of the creativity element, you know? And then in the next level of the pyramid, it's five hours a month in more what I call sort of uh, country nature, I guess. And it's stuff that you might find at like a state park, 
pretty relatively easy to get to, but it's not like, it's not Central Park, right? It's like a trail that's accessible. Um, and that's associated with a lot more happiness, less depression, uh, et cetera. And then at the very top, and I think this is the most interesting, is this concept called... Alaska. Yeah. <laughs> I almost died 17 times. Yes. No. <laughs> um, this idea called the three-day effect. And it mm-hmm. basically shows that after three days in backcountry nature, so this is stuff that um, is a little harder to access. This is like a camping trip, a backpacking trip. Um, your brain starts to ride what are called alpha waves. And these are the same waves that are found in experienced meditators. So in daily life, in sort of the modern hectic world, we ride what are called beta waves, and they're really kind of frenetic, go, 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 go. But once you get to that third day in nature, you tend to switch over to alpha waves, and these are like, ah, mm. just feel like more satisfied with life, um, just feel better, like I described, you know? And um, they've, they're doing a lot of research now with... Um, I mean, those are really associated with a lot more creativity. So there's one study that found, like, people's creativity improved by 50% after three days in nature. Um, There's also a movement of using extended time in nature to treat PTSD. So Mm -hmm. they're doing a lot of studies on uh, vets right now. And, you know, the key to all this is, like, I'm telling you this, and I think a lot of people go, yeah, I can probably do that. And you can but people don't realize we spend more than 90% of our time indoors now, something like 95% of our time. What's the difference of, I was born in 1970. So let's say um, when I was growing up or you're, you're, let's say between my age and like a 40 year old, how much more time do we have a sense of like, because when we were kids, they were like, go outside and come back at dark. Bye. Yeah, totally. You know, me too. Um, do we know what we used to, at least in the last, like, 20, let's say 25? So smartphones, 2007, right? Is that where we're yeah. at? Okay, so let's say if you were born by 97, you were 10 mm-hmm. by 2007. So let's say all the groups prior, do we know how long they were outside? There's a 50% um, difference between the generations before, I think, 1990. So there's a lot more time outside. Um, yeah. And in 1990, the reason things really changed is because there were some high-profile kidnappings that, you know, the kidnapping rate was not increasing in the United States. If anything, it was going down. But there was some cases that got a lot of press, and all of a sudden parents were like, I can't let you go outside, you know, unwatched. So helicopter parenting starts, and kids are not allowed to go outside as often. And there's also, um, there tends to be this trend where a lot of challenges sort of removed from their lives and what's the next my group is called the snowplow what do you guys call us what snowplow right? parents snowplow i love that um <laughs> yeah no it is interesting because we live part of the time in hawaii and uh, there's just not a lot to do there yeah. but do what nature provides for you so yeah. if you ride a wave or you go on a hike like teen i love like when teenagers are like well i guess we'll go on a hike and you're just like really yeah you know? or you go get awesome. slammed in the shore break yeah that's great uh, yeah so i think and you see development developmentally the difference even when they come into the house to say hi to you if we're here in california where kids are more they're they're hooked up to the thing and they and they have Mm -hmm. a bigger digital culture the way they interact with us as adults you have to be like hi and they're like oh hi you know like they it's so hard and you can feel like the island kids they just haven't gotten that digital lockdown as much yeah and um it's a more robust even a shy kid will still be like, 
and you know it's a different situation but still you can feel that they're mm-hmm. just by being outside and being integrated with old people and you know younger people in nature and things like that it's like you can feel it in their self-confidence yes totally you get forced into um doing interesting things you're moving a lot more you're having to have face-to-face interactions there's i mean and even things like the sights and smells and sounds of nature are associated with being calmer, less stressed, less, um, I guess, focused on yourself, more or less. You mm-hmm. kind of like open up, you know. And you did say, uh, there was one thing I thought was really interesting where you're talking about fractals in nature. Yeah. I really love this. So you're saying if you look at, you know, in nature, there's all these fractals and our brains really enjoy that. Yeah. And that Pollock... Uh, Yes. And I just saw some paintings by him yesterday. I forced my kids to go to the museum. <laughs> nice. I love it. No, a yelling match to go to the museum, right? Yeah. I'm like, you're going to look at stuff, you know? <laughs> I mean, seriously, parenting is so... Like, you you look at... Watch yourself from the outside about what you're yelling about, and you're yeah. like, that is so ridiculous. Anyway, you know? <laughs> but it made me think about it, because yeah. I read it, and I was like, oh, interesting. So maybe you could just... Can you just share that? Yeah, so, I thought it was really cool. So fractals are these repeating patterns that you see that make up the universe. And so you think about something like a tree. It's a big branch that goes to smaller branches, that goes to smaller branches, that goes eventually to leaves, which are really just look like smaller branches. Or a river system. Big river, little river, little river, little river, right? And because we evolved in environments where fractals made up everything, they seem to speak to us at like a a deep level and be calming. And um, in the built environment, you don't really get fractals. It's a lot of right angles. It's plain colors. It's just, you know, there's, there's not as many. And, um, are there any architects that have tried to incorporate this notion of fractals in building at all? That's a really great question. I don't know, Okay, but now I want to know. Okay. I I don't know. I was just curious (laughs) because you, I think I, who was saying it? There was somebody, anyway, there was somebody talking about how they're not in cities. And I was like, I wonder if there's an architect who's figured that out. Yeah, there should be. I hope that person's uh, listening. Um, but yeah, so Jackson Pollock's paintings mm-hmm. are made up of fractals. So it's kind of like big splash to smaller splash to smaller splash. And that, um, there was a study out of the University of Oregon. They think that that might be one reason why we love Jackson Pollock's paintings. Mm-hmm. Now, someone listening might think, oh, well, I'm going to use VR because you always hear this conversation, right? And, and that, in fact, um, I know a lot of people that work, Stephen Kotler, in flow state and all these things, mm-hmm. right? Is people or the, the beliefs that maybe there, our brains won't know the difference between a virtual and a VR experience mm-hmm. versus really doing it. Uh, do you have any feelings about that? So I've talked to one uh one or two researchers about this and i even did a vr nature thing mm-hmm. um i almost threw up after because it was very disorienting and it made me motion sick mm-hmm. so i think from my experience uh this was an expensive piece of equipment in a lab we're not there yet we're not quite there yet mm-hmm. now i don't think even if you come up with a vr thing and you're getting the sights in nature you're also getting sounds you're also getting smells. You're also probably moving more. And the contour, too, yeah. I would imagine. Yeah. Right? You're getting fresh air. I mean, there is so much that would have to happen in that field for it to be equal. Mm-hmm. Um, we're just not even close yet. At the same time, I realize that there, 
we should look into it because the reality is, is not everyone can go into nature, you know, yeah. especially, especially older people, for example. So I think that was the thinking behind a lot of the research is that if this has these benefits, is there a way we can mimic that for people who just simply cannot get out into nature? You know, so it's, it's worth chasing, but I think that if you are a person who can get out into nature, you should go for the real thing. I've had a lot of conversations on this uh, podcast and in, in my, you know, kind of training life and, mm-hmm. And it's what comes up over and over and over is it's now we have to try to figure out how to systematize the things that we used to do as part of our everyday life. Yeah. Right. Like I always think it's so fascinating. We have all this progress and within the progress. So I can FaceTime you halfway across the world. Yeah. And um, I can put something and scan your body temperature and all these things. But yet we still have to figure out ways to do things that we used to do intuitively and automatically that were just built into our lives. Yeah. And I, I always find that that sort of conflict just curious that, you know, I joke about like uh, when you if you told a grandma from somewhere like we're having bone broth, she'd be like, you're an idiot. You know <laughs> yeah. what I mean? Like, we're, totally. you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go take a walk. It's like, yeah. but this is really where we're at. Oh, yeah. Like, this is where we're at. Like, I didn't know how much we're I, I wouldn't have known except that I do have children and my children have friends yeah. and I watch them and we yeah. don't live. I mean, we live in one remote place, but we live also in a very developed place. That's kind of a heightened. I think California has a sort of heightened connection, maybe like some other cities with te- their technology. Yes. hundred percent. It's well, I mean, we're talking about, we're just talking about nature. It's like, People even a thousand years ago, which is not a lot of time in the grand scheme of time and space. I mean, this is a this is a fraction. I mean, not even it's a fraction of a fraction of a fraction to the twentieth power. People were outdoorsy in the sense that they lived outside all the time, right? So this is one thing that um, people have been like, well, I could I could never go out. Side to, and I'm not advocating anyone go up to Alaska. Like I'm not, but people are like, I, you know, I can't go camping. I'm like, you can't go camping because you were fortunate enough to be born now and like be in this environment where you know you you have the luxury of not going camping in the sense that like if you were born a thousand years ago, you would live outside. I promise you that you can do it. Yeah, right. Camping was called living. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> now we call it camping. Now we call it camping. I want to really, I have a couple, I want to get into um, Marcus Elliott and talking about his misogies and yeah. things like that. But um, Lavari, am I saying that right? Yes. Uh, okay. So I just thought that that was a, the comfort creep. I thought that was sort of a great way to encapsulate. Yeah. Um, maybe you could just. So the, the short answer. I guess it is this. He is at a, uh, he's in waiting in line for security at the airport. And he's with this guy, Daniel Gilbert, who's another famous Harvard psychologist. And they notice that the TSA, they treat a lot of non-threatening stuff. Like it's super threatening, right? It's like some old woman is getting the full body pat down because she forgot hairspray in her purse or whatever, you know? And they, they're psychologists, so they're talking and they're wondering and they're like, you know, I wonder what these people would do if all of a sudden, like, no one broke these rules of, you know, everyone remembered the bottle of water. They never saw anything come up in the scanner. They're like, would the TSA just let everyone sail through? And they didn't think so because these people's job is to search for problems. So they thought they'd start finding more problems. So being psychologists, they set up a study to see if that happens. And what they had people do 
is look at 800 different faces. So people would look at these faces and they would determine, is this face threatening or non-threatening? So, you know, you're looking at a face, you go, uh, threatening, non-threatening, threatening, non-threatening, and on and on and on. But what they did, where the catch is, is at the 200th face, they started showing the participants fewer and fewer threatening faces. So you would think if this was like clearly a black and white thing, people would start saying threatening less. But that didn't happen. What happened is the ratio stayed the exact same, and people started calling non-threatening faces threatening. They did a similar thing with um, deeming whether research proposals were ethical or unethical. And so what this tells us, basically is that as people experience fewer and fewer problems, we don't actually experience fewer problems. We just redefine what a problem is. So all of a sudden our problems become more hollow over time. And so this applies to how we deal with comfort now. So if you think about what the world was like 100 years ago, 1,000 years ago, 100,000 years ago, we have come unbelievably far. I mean, the average person wake up in temperature control. Most people in the U.S. have access to enough food. Um, we buy, to get our food, we work behind a desk. We don't have to, you know, physically toil. Um, we're not really challenged that much. And we don't look back and, and see this like, oh my God, we have it so great in the, the grand scheme of time and space. Instead, we just sort of adapt to whatever level of comfort is new and any, you know, when a new comfort comes in, we adapt to it. And then the old one is unacceptable. So think about, you know, here's an example. Like if you flew, uh, if you flew first class a few times, right, you're probably, if, when you go back into coach, you're like, this is, this is terrible. Like this is <laughs> God awful. Right. Um, but now pretend that you're someone from like, 1800 and someone puts you in yeah, you coach on a plane and you're wheel. like, Oh my God. <laughs> and I got oh. there in six hours, not in three brutal days. Weeks. Yeah. yeah. So uh, this essentially collectively, uh, can describe why we have quote unquote first world problems. Yeah. Because we don't look back and see, man, I have it pretty damn good. We instead go, my yoga class was canceled? Yeah. This is unbelievably <laughs> unfair. The world has just, you know, come Into together <laughs> to make this personally unfair to me. <laughs> but I feel like it's ramped up. Oh. Like, I think it's, well, you know, Chris Rock does a great skit about this when um, a woman's with a man and he comes home and he's like, you know, I lost my job. Have you ever seen this? No, I haven't. And he goes, you know, a woman doesn't go backwards. She isn't going to be like downsizing like her house, her car. She's like, oh, that's okay, baby. Because she's like, you're, I'm out. You know, like, <laughs> yeah. you know, so. I learned a lot from my guests in this podcast, but I also learned a lot about new companies that are out there that I didn't know about. Um, and one of them was Banyan Botanicals. They sent me, a, you know, a ton of their products about three months ago. And I personally started using the ashwagandha and the moringa. You know, I, I like to use Ayurvedic products as often as I can to support, you know, my holistic health. I just think that, um, you know, these positive whispers to our support and they, they have all kinds of products. They have things for your digestion and cleansing. And they even have this product that I tried that I really liked called the Stress Ease Tablets. Doesn't that sound good? And it just made a big difference. It's like, how do we get some of these edges off, but we're not taking things that still don't support our health in the long run. The other thing about 
Banyan Botanicals is not only are they conscientious about the products that they're selling, but they're certified B Corp. And so they're committed to sustainability. So it's not only, hey, we want to make great products for you that support you and your health, but also how can we do that consciously for the product, for the planet itself. And so they have a wonderful offer for you today. Um, And you can go to Banyan Botanicals. They've got videos, information, recipes, and another thing really important. I know sometimes it's hard to navigate like, well, what should I be taking? And and why should I be taking that? Or is this the right time in my life? Or which two things, if I wanted to try, would support me the best? Well, they have something called a dosha quiz. And what that is, is there's three types of dosha and they and they sort of say okay we'll give you this quiz and they will give you personalized recommendations in just 10 minutes so maybe you've been curious or maybe you're looking to kind of add something new into your day-to-day routine and ritual to support your health regardless of what's going on we're all you know going through different things at different times and so it really does just help you to understand the areas of your health that you want to improve so you've got the dosha quiz and they've got a great offer so head to banyanbotanicals.com that's b-a-n-y-a-n botanicals.com and go ahead and put in slash gabby g-a-b-b-y and they will give you 20 percent off your first purchase and remember if you just head to the top on the webpage, they've got this sort of green button up there and you can do your dosha quiz before you start looking around. And even if you just want to go there and get inspired and get new ideas and learn about new, you know, herbs and things that are out there to help you, it's really a wonderful site to check out. So go to banyanbotanicals.com. It's, it's almost like everything else where it's literally like a concerted effort and discipline to pay attention. Yeah. To really pay, I was watching a documentary the other night on Andrew Wyeth, the painter. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. This guy sat in people's his two neighbors' houses, one in Maine, one in Pennsylvania, for like ten years, mm-hmm. noticing light yeah. curtains. I mean, like that's amazing. Deep. No, no. There's nothing like this. Is what they were pat, like? Oh, there's Andrew sitting in the corner, and these were not like he wasn't in palatial estates. These were pretty brutal. One lady, Christina, she's a crippled right. Like this yeah. is this is a guy who's paying attention. Right. And so I even think, and this is why I feel like your book is so important. It is also the reminder that even in the times that you can't put yourself in those environments, what can you be doing just sitting here to notice? Because if we, if you have the discipline to pay attention to what's good, because mm-hmm. it is a practice and it your brain, if even neurologically, your, you know, your neuroreceptors will then look for good news over bad news. Mm-hmm. It is, people don't realize that they're developing those muscles as well, yeah. but that there may not be a way out of in certain ways, the comfort that we are and that our world seems to be pushing to and striving for more of, Yeah. but that each individual person has to keep paying attention and yes. and practicing like noticing all the small things that are going well and figuring out how they want to respond when they have the opportunity when it's shitty or it goes the wrong way because yes. that's the that's the moment you that's go here's my moment here's my moment to to respond the way I say I think I want to mm-hmm. respond because a lot of times you go well you know I want to look the other way or I want to be empathetic and all this it's like cool here's your moment mm-hmm. can you do it and yes. I mean I'm saying this personally you know it's a constant um exercise of like because you let your guard down and you all of a sudden you're acting like a knucklehead yes you know we say there's someone said to me once no crying on the yacht 
I mean, I think it sums it up. Like, just there's no yeah. cr- there's no crying on the yacht. It's like <laughs> yeah. what the mozzarella cheese is bad. It's like shut up. You know what yeah. I mean? So I think collectively, it's like and and I don't know with with our children. I always think modeling is better. I do. I swear, I feel hopeful that they swing around. Yeah. But just us as individuals, you as a as a teacher, as a professor, it's like there's things that we can do. It's like even the guy who helped you mm-hmm. that maybe the impact isn't right then. Right. Maybe it's in three years. Maybe it's in five years. You think about it. Yeah. But it just think, and also you watch people and you go, they just seem like they figured something out and they seem a lot happier. What is that? Yeah. Versus someone who's banging around in their life, having temper tantrums, you know? Right. Well, I mean, so this is why I think it's important to do things that push back at you, to challenge you. So, I mean, let's go back to the plane example. To get from Vegas to Seattle, which was the first flight, I'm on a 747. The I'm in coach, you know, I'm in fifth class, basically. <laughs> the seat is way too small. It is uncomfortable. The plane is way too hot. The screen in front of me, crappy movies. Worst movies ever. Terrible movies up at 30,000 feet, Terrible movies. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, this, is, this is very unfortunate. The coffee was terrible, et cetera, et cetera. So then I go to Alaska where it is freezing cold the entire time. If I want uh, water, I got to hike down to get it. Uh, There's never enough food. I am bored out of my mind. Every single thing is challenging. So then when I take the flight from Seattle to Vegas back home, that flight is the most unbelievable thing I've ever experienced. It was heaven because, oh my God, it's warm in here. I haven't been warm. This seat, I hadn't sat in a normal chair right? For a month with cushioning, I can press a button and someone will bring me like 20 packs of pretzels, right? I'd been so bored. Now that like movie that looked awful and probably was objectively awful in the grand scheme of movies, it was thrilling. One of the greatest movies I've ever seen, right? So, you know, the message here is not that like you have to go to these crazy extremes, but like what can you do in your daily life to have something that pushes back at you a little bit. I mean, even I experienced this even on my handful of day camping trip in Nevada. It's like when I get back, all of a sudden, like the food that I take for granted, I'm like, this is delicious. And mm-hmm. I think people who have like, you know, done outdoor things, you experience this. It's like that first meal back is like, oh man, I really appreciate this. And, you know, and if you're like a person who's like, I'm, I'm never going outside, that's totally fine. There's probably a lot of other ways to do this too. So for example, I volunteer at a homeless shelter. You know, it'll make you pretty damn thankful for your car, for even having to pay a mortgage. Yeah. Go do something like that. Yeah. Right. Do you, does it wear off? I think it does over time. That's why you need to be like constantly do things that, you know, sort of reset that for you. You know, I definitely, I mean, when I, the first like month back from Alaska, I mean, I was like, you know, on this pink cloud of like, oh my God, like the life is uh, like modern life is just unbelievable. How could anyone ever complain? Mm. And then, you know, by month two, it's like someone cuts me off in traffic and I'm like, that son of, you know, it just, it does, I think, fade over time because we adapt to our environments, you know, back to that idea of, uh, of problem creep. It's this low level feature of the human brain that used to save us a lot of brain power. It doesn't, it takes more brain power to think like of every single example you've ever seen in your life and realize like, Hey, comparatively, this is decent. You just think of the last one Mm -hmm. saves brain power. But in today's world where everything is so great, 
it can lead us to be miserable. So for example, I think objectively, if you look at us in the grand scheme of time and space, most people, especially in the US, are doing pretty well. When you poll people and ask, is life improving? Yeah. Only 6% of people say it is. Yeah, and then, then you have the mental health and the emotional health aspect. Yeah. Which there's so much talk around. And in some ways, I think it's, it's a complicated problem. And yet, a lot of it feels like if we had better day-to-day habits, if we weren't, if these young people had the opportunity to develop their perspective before getting inundated by social media mm-hmm. and everyone else's opinion right. about their every word and move and that they were allowed to make mistakes in front of three to five people, mm-hmm. that they'd have a chance. Yeah. So I, it's like you wonder if that's like biological as well. Like they're getting hammered in a way that I think most um, individuals would respond with having some kind of, I think you'd have to have a real strong sense of self at 11, 12 or 13 years old to be able to analyze what was happening and being like, you know, this isn't even real. Yeah. These people don't even know me. So that's the thing for me is it's, it's, it's a very fascinating thing where, and then I wonder like as us, the adults, as us, the Facebooks and the Instagrams and the TikToks, it's like, what I wonder what is the role? Cause then there's commerce, mm-hmm. right? And so you go, Oh, well, they're crushing it and they've got numbers and they're the biggest businesses in the world. Mm-hmm. But then there's like a social responsibility right. that you wonder, like, is this ever, gonna, are they going to collide? Because we all, we are, we're just talking about it, you mm-hmm. know? And, and so I, I find that kind of interesting because like you're saying, the better it gets for all of us, the other side of it is it's tipping and people are more depressed, more anxious. Yeah. There's more, you know, suicide. It's just, it's a interesting shift. Right. I mean, our lives have changed so much that we've kind of removed ourselves from a lot of these things that do tend to be good for us. So think about physical activity that is strongly, strongly associated with better mental health outcomes. Yeah. Full stop. And the average, uh, I think only 20% of people today uh, meet the government's exercise guidelines. And these are not, I mean, this is not the stuff that, you know, you and your husband are doing the crazy stuff. I mean, like heavy gardening counts, you know, it's like very basic stuff and people don't hit it. And so it's like, if you're never, you know, challenging uh, your body, like, of course you might have some mental health issues, you know? Um, and especially I think for kids, it's like the human brain is even fully developed until we're like 25 years old, you know, especially like the higher level executive function functioning. And so, you know, handing kids over a cell phone with Instagram and a million people on this drive that everyone has to feel loved, to feel influential 24 seven, like, yeah, that's especially pair that, I mean, pair that with a brain that isn't quite ready for that. Yeah. Yeah. Like I'm not, I'm not surprised. It's, um, you know, I, again, I, I talk about it because I fret about it myself, uh, cause of my, you know, again, it's really my right now. It's just my youngest. I feel like my other two have a, a, some kind of handle on it. Mm -hmm. Um, it's the, the one, it's the one that you just met. Um, but then I, and then you go back to, okay, well there's rules, but you know, that that's a constant, it's it's a constant battle. And yeah. if you talk to most parents, 
it's just, it's the number one. Yeah. You'd almost be like, okay, I'd rather catch her drinking than like being, <laughs> is that you on your phone? You know, it's like, I mean, I'm kidding, but it's just not, yeah. maybe I'm not at that point. Cause you'd be like, well, that's sort of a natural rebellion. This is like an everyday are you on your phone? Are yeah, you on your phone? Every Get day, off your like phone. White noise. Yeah, and let's add let's add some COVID and homeschooling. Yeah. And they're homeschooling, but they're on their phone. Yeah. Or the three screens. That's my favorite. It's like the phone, the iPad, the TV, or the computer. And you're just like, oh, you know what? Let's yeah. just call it. Like <laughs> it's we'll call it. Like, I don't know. I mean, there's yeah. days like that where Laird looks at me because he wants to just take his, you know, take everything and throw it to the bottom of the sea or the pool or yeah. put it in a thing. And I'm like, no, we we have to figure out how to help them manage this stuff. Yeah. Because they're gonna they're not gonna get anything about it. So when you wrote this book, um, you came across uh, Dr. Marcus Elliott, mm-hmm. who I know about because of P3 because yeah. of his training. I I love, um, you know, what they're doing, uh, and I know actually a lot of it is kind of quiet. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, okay, you're going to do these feats. The, he has all these professional athletes that are like in Santa Barbara, right? Yeah. Is that based, sort of yeah, the they have a they have one there and they have one in Atlanta as well. Oh, they do. That mm-hmm. makes sense. And um, not a lot, probably a lot of stand-up paddling going on in Atlanta, but a rock underwater, uh, rock carries. <laughs> yeah. But they, uh, they train a lot of very high-level athletes. Yes. And uh, maybe you could just share some of his philosophies. Because I, I think that the Masoji is something that... It almost be like for certain people, like I'm going to do a Spartan race this year, or and it doesn't necessarily have to be so grand. But if you could at least get a group of people together yeah. and be like, okay, we're going to do this yeah. feat. So Marcus is super interesting guy because he, I mean, he kind of revolutionized sports science. He really added a lot of um, sort of deep data and AI to and applied it to movement. So he can basically do things like you know he'll take this video of how a person moves and be like, oh, you have a 60% chance of having a knee injury in the next season. He works with a lot of NBA players, but uh, people from all sports and backgrounds. So I told you that, so you know he's kind of like this numbers nerd, numbers and figures and data. Uh, But he also realizes that like what improves uh, athletes and the average person, you can't always measure that stuff, right? Mm -hmm. It's like some people just have a gear. It's just a gear some people have. And what is that? And how do we get to that? So for that, he does this thing uh, he calls Masogi. And the Mm -hmm. idea is that once a year, we're going to go out and we're going to do something uh, really hard. And he defines really hard. Before you go into this, can you, because I think it is a beautiful story, how the Masogi came about from the... Oh, I'm yes. going to remember the title of the book. Yeah, Kojiki. Yes, Kojiki, which is what, like the oldest... Oldest living... um, book in Japan. It's like essentially all these myths about how the island came to be and the mm-hmm. culture. And so there's a story in it about a uh, guy named Izanagi and his wife dies. And he, so this is obviously a myth, which you'll, which you'll get when I explain it. Yeah. He, uh, he decides he can't live with his wife. So he goes down into the depths of the underworld to try and rescue her. And when he's down there, it's like he faces all this danger and peril and there's all these, you know, demons trying to grab at him, essentially trying to kill him. And he realizes, like, I have to get out of here. So he makes this, like, break to go, you know, this breakaway to go back up to his normal life. And he almost fails. Like, he thinks he's not going to make it, but he sort of digs, digs deep, makes it out, and he realizes, um, you know, he's capable of more than he ever thought possible. So he ends up taking this... Uh, there's a water purification that comes in that really like washes him of this impurities of his sort of former life. And he's just more confident, more competent. So 
Marcus does this thing called uh, Masogi, and the tale is called Masogi. And the idea is that once a year, you're going to kind of do something really hard where you have a high chance of failure as a way to sort of wash yourself of the impurities of modern life and learn, get this like new level of competence and confidence that you didn't have before you did it. Essentially, how they define if something is really hard is that there should be a 50% chance of failure. And then the second rule of it is that you can't die. So don't do anything dumb. Um, and they've done things like walking a boulder under the Santa Barbara Channel for five mm-hmm. miles, um, stand-up paddleboarding, I think, across the channel, which they've never really paddleboarded before. Well, and you're before. also talking about maybe not water athletes. So this is yeah. also like there's something people don't realize. When you're doing things and maybe you're not uber comfortable in water, mm-hmm. I tell people all the time because we do a lot of you know pool training and with dumbbells and things, and I say to people, this is the bravest thing you could do. Yeah. It, to be... In or above water when you're not comfortable yeah, is one of the bravest things anyone could do. 100%. And so the idea, too, one of them, which is more of a guideline, is that it should be something kind of kooky and made up. And the reason for that is so you can't compare mm. what you've done to other people. Because a lot of times nowadays people go, okay, I'm going to do this crazy hard epic thing it's like well, what should i do it's like well my neighbor ran a marathon in three hours yeah. i'm gonna try and do it in yeah 259 or whatever it is right yeah my aura ring here's my stats and my resting heart rate <laughs> yeah. instead of just like i made it yeah you're doing this 100 for you and the point mm. is to learn something about yourself because what tends to happen is that as people go out and if it's truly challenging they're you're gonna hit a point where you're like I can't do this. There's no way I can finish this. I'm going to have to quit in a minute. I'm just going to take a few more steps. Like I can see where my edge is, but you keep going past that. And then you get to a point where you can look back, see where, what you thought was your edge, but you're beyond it. And then it's like, okay, I've sold myself short in this thing. What else in my life am I selling myself short in? You can take that attitude into your normal life and you got that new gear that I think is going to help people. You know, so it also does a nice job reframing um, fear for people, Yeah. you know, because all of a sudden, you know, you were freaked out, but you made it. It's like all of a sudden, you know, that presentation that you have to give in front of your colleagues isn't quite as, as scary once you've realized like, oh, I can do a lot more than I thought I was capable of. Well, what I like about what he talks about is, so for example, if you were a marathon runner, your misogy cannot be that you're going to run 50 miles yes. because your chances of completing it are greater where if you've never run three miles, if you did a 10 mile. Yes. So it's like people understanding, to your point, it's, it's very, very personal. And he himself has done misogies that he failed. Yes. So let's say someone, have you had a, a situation, which I appreciate because also if you're going to be leading people, you need to take your own medicine mm-hmm. and you can't be like, I've finished every misogy, every single one. Right. It's like that shows the real strength of somebody when they, they couldn't or yeah. didn't for me. I mean, I, I'm way more impressed with that sometimes than like hundred percent number one, you know, it's like amazing. Okay. Right. Is so, okay. So kooky, but how, let's say somebody tries something and they don't make it. Still learn something about yourself. Yeah. Guarantee someone went farther than they thought possible. And also, you didn't die. You're still alive. It's like, oh, man. You know, you definitely learn something from that. And even failing that, you know, I think it kind of shows you that even today, 
when people, you know, in our past, as we were evolving, we had to do really hard, challenging things in nature all the time that yeah. were, you know, physical in nature. Um, this could be like a big epic hunt. This could be moving from summering to wintering grounds. Um, this could be a tiger lurking in the bushes, right? And each time we would make it through one of those things, we would learn something about ourselves. We would grow. We, you know, our, our fears would fade in a lot of ways. And nowadays we don't have these challenges that we used to have that would like just naturally produce themselves in our life. You know, we didn't ever train for this stuff either, you know? So that's yes. one of the big elements here too, is you're not, you're not training for it. You're just going out and doing something hard. And because we don't have those nowadays, we sort of lose that, um, that element of something is going to show us that we are cap more capable than we thought possible. So you're trying to mimic that with Masogi. So back to the training thing, it's like, if I decide, for example, oh, I'm going to run a marathon and I train for it by doing a normal marathon training, it's like, that's not a Masogi because you know you're going to finish that. Right. What's coming into your mind is like, what's my time going to be? Not, can I finish this? But if you've, you know, the farthest you've run is like 10 miles and you're like, I think I'm going to sign up for a marathon. That's tomorrow. I'm just going to see if I can do it. I really don't think I can do Maybe I could do it. I don't know. You know, that true, like, yeah. I don't know about this. You just try and do it. Because I guarantee you'll at least make it farther than 10 miles. Yeah. Right? And I think it's, you know, when we, when you even explore the notion of like a really optimum performance or health, what it always sort of seems to boil down to, the essence is, is being adaptable. Mm -hmm. It isn't like, well, you know, I'm keto and I'm this, I'm that, you know, yeah. it's my body will adapt. Yeah. And, um, and uh, I think you're saying the same thing because it also creates not only, okay, physical, some kind of physical flexibility where you're like, I'm tired, I'm cold, I can press on, but mm -hmm. also getting that emotional gear of, I do want to quit, but I'm going to figure out the way within myself to, to try to press on. And, and we don't really have that yeah. so much. And who wants to seek that out? You know what I mean? I mean, not, you know what I mean? Like on a Monday through a Sunday, it's like, here we go. And I know I do live with, I know, I mean, Laird sort of likes uncomfortable things mm -hmm. because I think for him, it feels he under, it's makes sense. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I've sort of watched some people around him and him find the way naturally. I think they're also medicating, right? Like the booze is out. Yeah. So it's like, this is another form of, no, it is. It's like, cause it tempers you. Right. Hey, yeah. I mean, that's the thing. <laughs> and and I think we, we don't give enough credit to, you know, and I'm not, I'm not going to identify it as masculine and feminine, but testosterone, especially for a young male, mm -hmm. um, what are you going to do with that? Right. I mean, you're going to stick that on a desk for 12 hours a day. It's like, I mean, you know, that need, that, that stuff has to go somewhere. Yeah, and so totally. I think that people don't realize that sometimes there's just that, that tempering. So now, okay, you've gone through all of this and you've written this book. What is it, and what are the ways that you're different? Well, I think, I think the main one is really that I'm just more, like, grateful and aware of how good we have it, you know? Like I said before about the plane. It's like, and if I can, like, kind of try and practice that in my daily life, mm -hmm. that makes me slightly less of uh, an asshole every day. And that colors my every interaction with people or people around me it makes their lives better it makes my own life better right so it's like this total perspective shift I think has happened I'm a lot more appreciative of everything and I realize that you know our time here is short 
So let's figure out how we're going to use this and try and, you know, I don't get worked up as much about just the little insignificant stuff. Like, I don't know. Just a, And, you know, I've learned a lot about um, what tends to keep me in that mindset. Things like time outside, um, how I think about fitness has changed. You know, I said I worked at Men's Health for a lot of years. I totally have a different perspective on that. You don't just that. have like a six-pack abs. Yeah. <laughs> no. I love that. I always yeah. see pictures. I'm like to people like, that's not fitness people, you know? And, yeah, no. How much um, you bench? How much you bench? Yeah. And I can, <laughs> I can confirm that because I used to sometimes have to go to those video shoots and you'd see a dude who are like, oh my gosh, that guy looks like the fittest guy ever. And he could like not, you give him a basic exercise and just could not do it. Yeah. It just wasn't coordinated. Um, <laughs> we used to joke with the bodybuilders at Gold's. So it's like, just run away. Just run away. Like yeah. if the guy's going to grab you, he's like, yeah, run. Yeah, <laughs> like, that's great. No, it, it's, you know, and listen, I'm not bagging on that. It's just people have an idea about like what works. It's like... N- Usually what looks mm-hmm. or what we have celebrated yes. and been like, this is fit. That may not actually be the thing, but you, we have to be comfortable with knowing for ourselves, hey, like I could do stuff and I'm in good health. Yeah. And, um, you know, because excess, like especially like guys, like giant biceps and shoulders, that's a lot of work to carry around. And unless you need it for like a sport or some yeah. kind of activity, yeah. it's like maybe that isn't the sense of like, that dude's buff. It's like, yeah, okay, but yeah, you know. I'm not. I'm not convinced that <laughs> excess muscle is good for your health. And it's, um, yeah. it's interesting because, like, you know, in the past, we no one was ever buff. Like, we didn't ever have to lift anything that heavy. And not to mention, there wasn't enough food to be able to pack on a lot of mass. You know, right? It's just um, fascinating. I mean, maybe you had some guys in Eastern Europe who were just like, or they were farm guys who were really lifting yeah. big things, and they can deal with cold weather. And there was a reason. Yeah. But I, I do, I do think that sometimes when we get that space, like you say, that perspective, that lens can go onto a lot of things. Hundred mm-hmm. like, percent. Do I need? Do I need to go on that with those to that? party with all those people do i really care about that yeah. like do i have to train that way to look like that yeah um, or can i find my lane on the things that push me but they also kind of feel like me right you know I, i'm always you know wanting to try to f- keep figuring that out and even you know look at that in other people is there anything still though that like gets you like you, you, you're like, Oh, there it is, you know, or surprises you, or you, you kind of flip your switch a little and you're like still trying to work on that. Well, I would say that, yeah, probably, you know, with this book that's come out, there's just more attention and attention comes in the form of, uh, stuff like on Instagram and like emails. And it's great because I want the message to get out. Um, but also like, the week the book came out, I, I mean, my screen time was like gross, you know? And so it's trying to figure out how do you balance mm. that? And I think my wife, uh, my mom put it to me this way. Hey, better that than crickets, right? Which is true. Well, it's a window. You yes. have to know like, hey, it's a window. that momentum that's, it maybe it's for a few weeks or a few months. And if it, it also catapults the message, then you understand you have it in its box yeah. and you can say to your wife, who's your confidant, I'm feeling a little uh, like, uh, under it or overwhelmed mm-hmm. and I'll, I get it. But also I always think it's important to 
express it, to get it out yeah. from here inside to outside. Mm-hmm. But it just it's a moment. Now, if it was like, hey, for the next unknown period of time, <laughs> yeah. your life is going to be psycho. It's like it's like sadness for a lot of people. Yeah, They just think, oh, I'm going to feel like this forever. Yeah. And that's when it becomes a problem. Totally. I'm with you. And it's funny because I... Marcus texted me after the book came out and was like, yeah, congrats, blah, blah, blah. And I can't, he said something and I was like, kind of mentioned that. And he just goes, Hey man, think of this as its own little Masogi. Just remember the next perfect stroke. And I'm like, yeah, that's actually very helpful. Yeah. <laughs> so now speaking of, do you have anyone's planned, any Masogis planned coming up? Well, it's funny that you mentioned it because so back to that 50, 50 rule. And like uh, one way that I think about it too, is like what genuinely like scares you mm-hmm. water. I live in the desert for a reason. <laughs> Not a big water person. Okay. Never have been. Grew up in the desert as well. I grew up north of Salt Lake City. And uh, i got to figure something out that involves water, I think, unfortunately, for myself. I but, feel like I, we can help you with that. Yeah, I'm sure you could. Seriously. <laughs> I think that you guys would probably be the top on anyone's list to figure out a water thing. I have a I have a real feeling. Um, we just finished an experience last week. We do occasionally these two-and-a-half-day experiences. Yeah. And, I'm so tired after because I can see everyone when I put him in the pool and Laird doesn't train the people in the pool. I do with this other guy named Mark Roberts. Okay. And I always say, because in my house, I'm like the weakest person in the pool, even though I'm pretty good in the pool. So I know all the right ways to do it. Okay. Laird will just like, just hold your breath longer or muscle it or whatever. Right. (laughs) And I'm like, no, look down. You'll be more hydrodynamic. 7% more, easier. Like, I know all the ways. That's cool. Because I've had to survive it. Yeah. I've had to figure it out. Totally. And I'm like, listen, I'm taking 14 years and compressing it for you in 30 seconds. Take it. Yeah. Right? But what's fascinating is when you see, you can see everyone when they're in there. Yeah. Because it's primal. Mm-hmm. And you see when the moment when it's going wrong and they do, and you go, Okay, here's their moment. Are they going to freak out? Are they going to drop the weight? Are they going to make the right decision? Yeah. What What's their go-to? And you can see it all, and you feel it, yeah. right? And when people hit that that wall and they feel really uncomfortable, like they might, it you're not going to drown. Mm-hmm. We're all standing there. We're not going to let you drown. Right. But it's a real thing. Oh yeah, your brain doesn't. And uh, and your to watch not factoring them, that in. right? But to watch them, some of them will just. The best is like, it's like the dumbbells, 20, 25 pounds, maybe don't swim to the top, maybe put the dumbbell on the bottom and then swim up. But mm-hmm. you'll see certain people start trying to swim with the dumbbell. Oh, yeah. Like they go opposite. Wow. And then you'll see somebody very unassuming. Maybe, you know, it's like some middle-aged lady or whatever. And you can, I'm watching her from the top of my pool deck and she's looking up, trying to figure out, okay, I'm not, this isn't working out. What should I do? Mm-hmm. So it's, water is a really beautiful element because it's objective. Yeah. And I always tell people, listen, the idea for a lot of people who aren't comfortable in the water is that it pulls you down. But if we can switch it and also think it lifts you up, Mm. it's weightless. That's cool. It's beautiful. It's really soft. But then there's a moment that it's hard. Like Mm -hmm. you can grab it. You know, it's all these dynamics. So let me know. I would love to to help you. And so when when, when you put this book out there, if there was... You know, besides the kind of really obvious reminders, hey, everybody, let's get outside and let's get off our phones. You know, what was the the thing that you were really hoping? I'm I'm hoping that, um, a couple of things. Well, I'm hoping that it sort of showed people just how much our lives have changed over the last, you know, 100,000, 100,000 years. 
um, because they have, like, unbelievably. And the real difference is that, you know, the world has become a lot more comfortable and easier and less challenging. And this makes sense from an evolutionary perspective, right? Humans are wired to seek comfort because in these environments that we evolved in that were challenging, that were uncomfortable, that used to keep us alive. But it no longer serves us anymore. Yet we still, we've engineered the world to be comfort, comfortable and effortless, but we still have this drive to always seek comfort. So it's backfiring. And you see it in, mm. I mean, all the crazy data. And I just don't think people realize um, how different it is. And I also think that, you know, we shouldn't feel um, ashamed for things like wanting to eat an entire freaking pint of ice cream right. or not wanting to exercise because in the grand scheme of time, that behavior would have kept us alive. It's wired into us, right? It's like, if you're the type of person who can always say no to ice cream and always exercises all the time, like you are the weird one in the Well, you're running from of, something. I always find, because yeah. I know a lot of people like that. And I'm like, what's going on under That's the hood? That's a great point, yeah. You know, I always say about like uh, David Goggins, I'm like, what's he running from? Like, I'm joking, I love the guy. But you're just like, dude, like, what's up? Like, yeah. what's going on, you know? And and I I think the key that you're saying, too, even having, putting these systems in place, like, hey, I'm going to walk, I'm going to put my phone away, I'm going to do a misogy, whatever. It's reminding people, just get, this is the world we live in. Mm -hmm. So how do we put things in place to yes. support us? Let me tell you, when I get up in the morning, I'm out, I'm, and I've said this a million times, I'm not so excited to exercise. Yeah. I just understand. Yeah. So I have a system in place to keep me accountable, to right. hold me on the line. Believe me, I want to eat pizza. I want to eat chocolate cake. I look at it. You know, I'm like, yeah, that looks good. Do I have less of a craving because I don't eat it so much? Of course. Yeah. However, it's just I make a different choice because I also know how I'm going to feel. Yeah. Right? Like I know the difference. So I just think it's important for people to, like you said, in a way, we have to be accountable, but then also be easy on ourselves. Like yes. this is natural, but what am I going to do about it? Exactly. You and know. realizing that, you know, doing the harder thing in the short term leads to everything being easier in the long term right. and feeling better. So last couple things. Okay. If someone's listening and they maybe they're fighting the good fight with alcohol, what would be, just be your sort of like you put your arm around their shoulder and just say, hey, if I was going to start out on trying to put this aside, what would you say? I would tell them that you are not a bad person. You could be a sick person. And realizing that helped me a lot. Yeah. 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 If you came in here coughing, I wouldn't be like, Jesus, Michael, with the cough. You know, it's like, right. I think people, it's a hard, it's a, it's a weird and hard thing. It's a, yeah, it's a disease. And, you know, societally, I think we sometimes miss that. Yeah. But, um, you know, for me, I had to reach out and ask for help. That was huge for me too. And, you know, as we've sort of talked about earlier, there are a lot of people who struggled with this. It's and everywhere. They'd probably be happy to talk to you. And that, that helped me because you get some, some realizations that are helpful. For example, the guy we talked about earlier. Yeah. I'm all in my head about like, you know, when I first was getting sober and I had like to go to social things where there would normally be alcohol, like a work function or whatever. I'm like, Hey, um, so, so what do I do if someone asked me if I want to drink? And he just looked at me and goes, and you say, no, thanks. Yeah. That simple. And it was like, oh, I didn't, you know, never thought of that one. <laughs> so sometimes mm -hmm. you just need, like, someone to offer you advice who's been there. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. 
just because I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you, your practice, your eating and your movement kind of life, what does that look like? Um, I do. So eating, I generally just try and eat foods that uh, have one ingredient, I guess you would say, you know. Mm -hmm. So um, I don't get too finicky over ratios of carbs to fats to protein, but I just eat, you know, stuff like oatmeal for breakfast. I eat a lot of potatoes. I love potatoes. I don't put, you know, cheese and bacon and cheese whiz all over them, of course. Um, I eat meat. I don't eat a ton of it, and I think that's partially from hunting. I got definitely a sort of newfound respect for meat and where it comes from and what goes into it. Um, so that's pretty simple. You know, I just find that foods that aren't too complicated and ultra processed are, uh, they keep me fuller longer. They keep me at a weight I want to be at. At the same time, I'm not like, I will crush an ice cream cone every now and then. Yeah. And like, I survived, like it's not going to kill you, you know? And what about your training? Um, do you have I, a sport that you practice? Like, are you rock climbing or cycling? Yeah, so I do um, quite a bit of trail running because I'm right out by the desert, and mm -hmm. I just love running out there. Um, I rock quite a bit. That's always a thing that mm -hmm. uh, my wife and I do that together. We'll, like, you know, just throw on a heavy pack and take the dogs out. That's fun. And then I have, you know, gym stuff in my garage that's just pretty pretty basic, and that usually does it for me. I just try and go outside and do stuff, you know. I always laugh like the people who their job is like, I worked at men's fitness and stuff. They're like, well, you know, I just kind of do a little of this and a little of that. Yeah. And you realize that, you know, you can't do everything all the time at the same level. So it's like going in and out of it. Is there any type of training or any sport that you're curious about um, besides the water stuff that uh, you sort of eyeballing out of the side of your head that looks interesting to you? Mm, well, I mean, I used to mountain bike a lot in college. Like that's what I spent all my time doing. And then um, I moved to New York City for a while. And so there went the bike. So I'd like to get back into that. Um, in terms of other stuff, I think rock climbing would be good for me because I don't like heights. And so again, oh. kind of like the water thing, I'm like, yeah, I should probably, I should probably face that down. Well, Michael, my, uh, I really appreciate it. I told you I read the book and listened to it. And I, I confessed to you when you got here that I actually listened to it while I was walking the, um, up and I was doing some hikes with the dog. And then when I got to the part, it was like, you know, just don't be distracted. I thought, oh God. <laughs> it's all right. <laughs> I just uh, was reading the book hard because it's hard reading books, isn't it, for the Audible? Was that, was oh that, oh my <laughs> gosh. I thought it was going to be just like you waltz in there, you just speak it into a microphone, you're done. It was a humbling experience mm -hmm. for sure. It's, it's challenging and, um, really funny that the studio where I recorded it in is down in this really sketchy part of Vegas and it's totally unmarked. I'm not even sure if I'm in the right place. This guy comes to the, you know, I knock this guy, comes to the door and I'm like, is this so and so studio? And he's like, yeah, come in. And I go in, there's all these platinum albums on the wall, like Kanye West, like Kenny Chesney, all these platinum albums. I'm like, I had no idea this was here. And the guy goes, yeah, that's the point. <laughs> yeah, how many days, like three days to uh, read this? Yeah, it was four days, and then there was a pickup day for the stuff that uh, the stuff that I messed up on. Turns out I pronounce a lot of words wrong. So, yeah, join the go. club. Yeah. <laughs> well, the comfort crisis, if anyone wants to, uh, you have it, both options. And um, did I forget anything? That I felt really so. important to you? No, thank you. Are you sure? No, thank you. I, this is, listen, this is the stuff that um, we all need to like campfire it and keep sharing and reminding each other and, and um, inspiring each other. So I really appreciate that you're doing that with this book. Thank yeah. you. Awesome. Glad you enjoyed it.
Thanks so much for listening. And if you'd like, rate, subscribe, and leave us a review. All of my music was graciously done by Frank Zumo and Tom Thacker. If you want to see some of the behind the scenes action, just follow me at Gabby Reese. And remember, don't miss new episodes every Monday. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.